0: Hello, everyone. I'm Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, and I'd like to welcome you to the sunny side of the farm. Welcome, everyone. This is Sonny Perdue, and I want to welcome you all back to the sunny side of the farm. This is a podcast that tells you what we're doing here at the Department of Agriculture and where we hope to go. Today, I am fascinated to be joined by Guy Guy Sermon, a City Journal contributing editor and a former economics professor at the Paris Institute of Political Sciences. Uh, I didn't really know much, I must confess, I didn't know much about you, Guy, until I read your work in the Wall Street Journal and then I pursued with further essays and see that you've been writing about these issues for many, many years. So it's great to have you with us here and uh, maybe I have some listeners that may not be familiar with your work as well, Guy. So tell us a little bit about what you do and what you've done.
1: Well, first of all, Mr. Secretary, I mean, they thank you to have me in the, uh, I, I, I guess you will accept my French accent. <laughs> I can't hide it, but yeah. I guess you have some kind of a Southern accent. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a French economist and the, uh, I'm working on development issues uh, since more than 40 years. Um, I'm mostly interested in development strategies, I mean, how do you bring people from poverty to a decent life. And this is one of the reasons why I focused on the so-called green revolution, innovation in agriculture because if you look at the world since 40, 50 years, this has been the only positive revolution. A revolution is always a bit ambiguous, but the so-called green revolution, which really brought millions of people out of poverty and uh, out of famine, out of hunger. This has been the most positive revolution during my life and during our life. And this is the focus of my work.
0: Well, congratulations to what you've written about and what you've uh, identified, even going back to the, the Green Revolution by Norman Borlaug, who we revere here. Uh, but as you indicated, uh, his work is somewhat forgotten. I guess my question is from a layman's perspective, are we victims of that success? It seems like we've forgotten some of the lessons that have gotten us here based on the anti-cultural of modern technology of agriculture.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, you're right. We are victims of our success because for example, uh, we, nearly everybody on earth, I mean, 95 people of the body on the people on earth, I mean, they can eat decently on a daily basis. This is totally new. I mean, if you go back, you know, 40 years behind us, I mean, the uh, millions of people in India, in China, in Africa were starving. They are not starving anymore. And for us, I mean, this miracle is like an evidence. We totally forgot how we uh, succeeded in the transition from starvation to relative satisfaction. Uh, we have some nutrition, of course, but the situation is a, it is a, a revolution. So um, we have got accustomed to it. it. It's a new normal. And we have totally forgotten how we got there. Well,
0: you know, I know that you have the facts on your side, but if you hear some people talk about today, I call them glass half full people. We talk about all the starving people in the world and the food insecure people. But the facts are exactly as you said. It's miraculous of where we've come from with the, uh, the food security that has been attained. And I think you mentioned the fact that uh, there are two primary things that have happened to that science, technology, and uh, modern commerce and logistics. And uh, speak to us about that.
1: Yeah, that's very important because innovation, as such, is good, but has no consequences. Innovation must be combined with trade, with commerce, with entrepreneurship. So the, the real change and the real revolution and the success story has been the combination of scientific innovation and commerce and, and trade. You, you, you cannot separate both, you know? And they, yeah, it's very important today when you have so many ideological movements saying let's go back to organic food or this kind of thing. They, they totally ignore uh, the fundamentals and the two. And, and once again, you cannot separate both. Trade and innovation goes hand in hand, and this goes beyond agriculture.
0: Well, it does go beyond agriculture, and I think we're seeing it played out on the global stage today. But as I read, even Normal Borlaug, with his miracle of the Green Revolution and the genetics in rice, faced this same sort of thing with success in Africa as he was being accused of poisoning the Africans.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, uh, Bolog was being accused of poisoning the African, and the Swaminathan was working with Bolog in India. Uh, Bolog was more focused on wheat and maize, and Swaminathan was more focused on rice. You know, the west and the east, and both were accused uh, because when you go from poverty to wealth or relative wealth, well, some people. Become better off than others. You know, at the very beginning, everything was poor. <laughs> so you had total equality in poverty. Then when you have progress and trade, some people become more wealthy because they are better entrepreneurs and they are more successful. And immediately, you know, you have some uh, yeah, left-wing ideologue who say it's awful, you know, we have inequality, worries, social justice, you know, in the yeah. And we are killing the earth by bringing chemical. I mean, This kind of the um, anti-progress uh, attitude, as we mentioned before, is, is very difficult to discuss with these people. Because they are not really interested in facts. They are only interested in their own opinions. And they want to look nice. They want to be with the angels. And reality is totally foreign to us. Uh, Sometimes it say that it's a religion. It's not a religion because the religion is ethical. This is an unethical religion, which has no respect for the poor people, in a way. Because the Green Revolution brought a a different life, a better life to the poorest people, not to the wealthy people. So if you want to be really ethical, you must be on the side of the facts, and you must be on the side of the poorest people on earth.
0: Absolutely. I sometimes say these views are based on political science, not biological science. uh, Yeah, well,
1: (laughs) even political science, you are too nice, because when you (laughs) say science, it's supposed that you take some facts into consideration, so it's not even political science.
0: (laughs) I understand. I was fascinated by one of the quotes along this line that you had in your Wall Street Journal article called The Modern Food Miracle. You said, it's easy to achieve equality when there is nothing to distribute. Leftists seem to prefer scarcity to plenty if plenty implies unequal portions. We see that playing out across the
1: globe today. Absolutely, I mean, uh, but if I may quote a French political scientist, Tocqueville writing about America, he said that uh, the Americans uh, will always be obsessed by equality and they would put equality above freedom if necessary. Mm-hmm. So there is this tendency in the human being uh, based on envy, in a way, and that this trend, and we must fight against it to put equality first without looking at the human consequences. And as I said before, are the unethical human consequences of the search for equality at any price.
0: One of the other quotes I saw in an article I thought was very pithy was, uh, science progresses, ideologies spin their wheels.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, uh, it's pithy, so I won't add anything. (laughs) But that's If I I may, uh, it's interesting that ideology never changes in a way. It has, you know, different names and... Sometimes it's called socialism or Marxism or or whatever, or populism, I don't know. But basically, it's always the same. So ideology never changes. There's a big difference between ideology and science. Science do progress because it goes from one to B, okay, and from from B to C based on facts. Ideology is not interested in facts, only in opinion and feelings and so it cannot progress.
0: One of the other parts in the, this article that I was fascinated by that I'd love for you to talk about, you mentioned the fact, and many people don't know this, that four-fifths of humanity, four-fifths of humanity is fed by calories originating in another country. So you, uh, you say that eating, quote, local and, quote, organic is a pleasant luxury reserved for privileged consumers. I, I see that in this country to a large degree.
1: Well, to, to eat local is hard work. <laughs> yes, and You need a lot of energy and a lot of money. You know, really? there was a, yeah, a good friend of mine, a journalist with the New Yorker, Adam Gopnik, just for play, decided to eat local in Manhattan for one week. So it was a full-time job to look for local food in Manhattan, even chicken. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was so funny. So to eat local has absolutely no meaning because even when you think you eat local, where does your local tomato comes, b- comes from? Right. Where does your soybean come from? Nobody eats local. It's, right. It has absolutely no meaning. I mean, the, uh, we eat global and we eat because through logistics and commerce, we are able to eat global, and this is the way we survive. Surely. Uh,
0: interestingly, I, I think that uh, we uh, we see that attitude. I, I guess what I would ask you, though, is uh, what do you see? Will, will this uh, tension always be with us? Or, or what is the anecdote uh, We have uh, put forth a... Uh, a an agenda for USDA and farmers and producers called a, a, a technology agenda there to recognize the, the benefits of science and the progression to help us produce more with less environmental footprint so that we can keep our social obligation to uh, people for affordable food while we keep an economic sustainability for the people who produce it. Because mm-hmm. uh, as you mentioned, eating locals is hard work for any of us who've tried to have a garden you know how
1: hard work that is, even just a local garden. I have a garden, it's a lot of work, <laughs> <laughs> and the outcome is so-so. And the, um, uh, you ask is there will always be a tension between these both trends. Yes, of course, there always be a tension. And this tension between, I would say, anti-progress and ignorance and ideology on one side, and facts and real progress on the other side, this requires us to be very strong, to be uh, very um, elaborate and able to defend our arguments. And also, I think that the, uh, there's a tendency uh, at, from at the school level um, to uh, be less aware of what science is about, you know, uh, when I was a young kid, I mean, they, we all believed in science and progress. But now in school, the education is putting on the same side uh, at the same level facts and opinions. So the struggle starts you know, at a very young age. I think it's very important at a very young age, at primary school, college and so on I mean to educate the people about what science means, how science works. If not, they will be totally confused and put once again on the same level their belief and facts. You
0: know, you mentioned in this article as well, there are two things that I see that are under attack uh, in even our country, the United States today, but certainly globally. And uh, the foundation of what you said was uh, lifting people out of hunger. The two pillars were science and capitalism. Both of those are under attack and... uh, from a political perspective, as well as from a scientific perspective. So what is the antidote? You, you, I guess you mentioned early early training of understanding the, the factual aspect of how we really benefit people's lives, but what other contribution do you have r- regarding uh, how we communicate this culturally?
1: Um, I think in, um, the debate mostly is around capitalism, uh, which is not the right word. I think uh, I am pro-market. I'm not pro-capitalism. Capitalism Capitalism is a word which was invented by Karl Marx in a way. So uh, we don't use the right vocabulary. We don't use the right words. We are pro-market. We are pro-entrepreneurship. We are pro-free market. Free market means freedom. So I think the way we speak is extremely important. Because if you say capitalism, you are already on the defensive. If you say I'm pro-market, I'm pro-free market, it means that you are on the side of freedom. So the way we talk, the vocabulary we use, uh, it's absolutely uh, decisive and starting at a very young age. And of course, in the way we express ourselves, scholars, scientists, and politicians.
0: I I think that's a great point. I've always felt, even as a young adult, that really trade and and market swapping between countries was really the ultimate uh, path to peace, uh, global peace in that regard, as we become interdependent upon one another.
1: Well, trade is peace, in a way. I mean, they, uh, this has been explained I mean, since the 18th century uh, by Adam Smith and others, that the best way, you know, to, to keep peace and to build, is to build trade. When you trade, you don't go at war. So this is why trade is essential, not only on the topic we are talking about, you know, regarding uh, food and all that, but also it's really the way to be at peace together with no exception. So I won't go into details, but you know, uh, I think uh, dealing with China is very complicated, with India is very complicated, but it's through trade that we will reach some kind of big, uh, reconciliation and balance Playing on the interest on both sides.
0: Well, hopefully we can continue in that regard uh, in this effort. Uh, so we are uh, we're obviously at a crossroads here as uh, we look to advance our uh, agenda in agricultural technology, which is really uh, trying to do more with less, less mm-hmm. environmental footprint, less. Uh, you know, you know, there's no farmer that wants to poison the land uh, so future <laughs> generations can't use it. It's uh, not to their benefit. Uh, and so we, we need to keep the environment in mind. But as we said, uh, for people in the less fortunate countries, uh, we need to keep food uh, affordable in that regard because uh, for them to be able to consume it, they have to be able to, to purchase it. And then uh, certainly our producers need to be uh, economically stable as well and have a livelihood for them and their families as well. So uh, that's, a, that's quite a balance we have before us.
1: Yeah, but I, I'm quite optimistic uh, because the um, the fruit producers in the United States or in Europe know that they have to find this balance, you know, between environment and productivity. They are totally aware of that. Okay, and also I'm very optimistic regarding science. It seems to me that yeah, uh, we are at the very beginning of the scientific revolution. You know, GMOs is very recent and the changes have been tremendous. The increase in productivity through GMOs is huge as we all know, okay? With no bad consequences, nobody ever became sick because of GMOs and this is totally under control. But GMOs today or this kind of technique is being used only for very limited number of crops, you know, basically maize and soybean. But what about wheat, potatoes, rice? We don't yet use GMOs. So I think we are, we are the very, very start, very, very beginning of a huge scientific revolution, which will impact I mean all the food chain. So uh, there is no doubt about it. And this is why we have... I think we, people believing in facts, yeah. we have to be very strong in our defense of science and really explain to the people, I mean, all the benefits, all the gains, has seen 30 or 40 years.
0: That's exactly what we're trying to do, and that's one of the reasons I'm very concerned about the EU's proposal over there, uh, Form a Fork, which is a sustainability which we all agree with, but I think their technology of using anti-science or no science and going back, uh, backward in the future, is <laughs> uh, uh, the, the wrong approach. So I'm very concerned of their abilities and their efforts to export this kind of technology. It looks like they're trying to bring the world down to their standards rather than coming up to the world standards of using modern technologies to produce food.
1: Being French and European, I'm concerned as well. Yeah. And I'm not the only one. It's a, it's a struggle within Europe. Uh, on one side, you have a very strong lobby of the uh, the Green Party yeah. playing politics, and the other political parties, you know, trying to, you know, to use their influence, uh, yeah, to, to keep their power. So it's a political debate more than a scientific debate. Right. And the, um, also, uh, we are in the transition in Europe. I mean, the, we are becoming European, we are becoming global citizen, but we are in between, in between our past, which was very nationalistic, yeah. and our future, which will be totally global. So we are in between. It's a fight, and uh, there, there is a way to win this fight, and that's the way I'm fighting in France. I try to explain the consumer the price they pay for this kind of policy. Because when you talk about protectionism, when you talk about organic food, and we talk about, you know, eating local and this kind of stuff, what the consumer do not understand that he or she pays for that, uh, the price of food, uh, you take milk, for example. Milk in France costs four times what it costs on the global market this is the price that the consumers pay for this kind of stupid, you know, reactionary politics, but they don't know about it. They, okay. But they will. So once again, it's a struggle, and it's a struggle which takes place not between the United States and Europe, but within the European Union. Yeah, I mean, there are more and more rational people in Europe saying, look, uh, do the consumers really want to pay four times the price of the global market to buy his milk on a daily basis, on his bread. So on the day when the consumers begin to understand that, this debate will be over. I I
0: think you're right, but I think, again, we've been victims of our own success and productivity because our consumers have had it fine so far. But as we continue to move toward protectionism and less scientific methods that are uh, not as efficient, then I fear that uh, it will be hard to reverse that and the consumers will uh, will face uh, higher prices uh, as a result of the policies that they thought they wanted. I I likened it a few days ago, gee, to uh, the sentimentality of the ocean liners. I said, I guess we could cancel all the transatlantic flights and go back to the ocean liners, which was very, <laughs> uh, uh, very uh, sentimental there, but it wouldn't be much commerce.
1: Yeah, you know, uh- you said something which is very important. I mean progress is immediately taken for granted. Okay. You have a headache, you take an aspirin, you are cured. Yeah. It's evident. You forget that in the past there was no aspirin. Okay. Right. You yes. eat what you want on a daily basis, I mean you eat strawberries in December, and yeah. it's evident. Yeah. You totally forget that the strawberries are imported from Chile or another place. That the, that the beauty and the complexity of progress, progress is immediately taken for granted. And this is why, as we said before, Minta and I think you, mean as an elected official, and myself as a scholar, we are we are there to fight. Uh, we are there to fight for not for pro- just for facts, you know, information, facts, mean explaining, and it's endless. You and I will never win, we'll fight until the end of our life, you know, but this is our duty, and this is our job, and this is why you've been elected, and this is why I'm writing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've uh, just written down another Guy Simone quote, uh, that uh, (laughs) uh, progress will always be taken for granted immediately, and uh, I guess that's (laughs) a battle that we have, but Thank you for being in the uh, in this fight for so long and continuing there to write and to expose many of the non-factual opinions that are, as you indicated earlier, I think absolutely unethical. When it talks about feeding a hungry world and continuing as we see a population growth uh, approaching what what demographics say are maybe 10 billion people by 2050, it's going to take science and technology and progress to do that. So. Thank you for staying by the stuff very courageously uh, mentioning many of the things that you've written about, and it's been an absolute uh, thrill to be able to get to speak with you personally, and I appreciate you joining us today.
1: Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Next time we do lunch in the United States, and not on a virtual Zoom conference. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would welcome that. And I hope you'll take us up on that. You're always welcome here at USDA. And I would love to just have a very much longer conversation with you because you're a, a wealth of history and knowledge in this effort, in this battle we continue on. So I want to thank everyone today for listening to the sunny side of the farm. It's been a fascinating conversation with uh, Guy Sermon, uh, a very accomplished, uh, economist in France and uh, understands uh, exactly what we're facing globally about the challenges of feeding a growing mankind uh, across the world. So thank you, Guy, and thank you all for joining us, and we look forward to having you back with us on our next episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Sunny Side of the Farm, and I look forward to visiting you again next month